in Perea and preaching in, in Luke chapter 14. He had been invited to a meal in the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees. And they had tried to lay a trap for him to cause him to heal somebody on the Sabbath, which they objected to. But, of course, Jesus, as usual, turned the tables on them very uh, rather quickly. And then he began to look around at uh, these people that were attending this meal, and he began to see several issues. And I've listed four problems that Jesus saw. And you remember the first one was that uh, really they, were, they showed no compassion for anyone, really hardly for anything. They just used this poor man who was ill to try to trap Jesus, had no concern for him. And, and we looked at other passages where they lacked compassion as well. Then we saw that uh, they were all uh, trying to get the seats of honor. And so Jesus talked with them a little bit about pride. And so that, that's a huge subject you got when you talk about pride, you have to talk about humility along with it. And so we were discussing that and just uh, kind of wrapping that up as we ran out of time last week. I would just add to what we said then, uh, James 4 and verse 6 says, God uh, resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And uh, I also think of 1 Peter 5 verses 5 through 7. Christians are to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another, put it on like a garment. You know, it's not just a little thing you have on the back of your hand somewhere or something like that, but you put it on humility like putting on a garment toward one another. And he goes on to say that to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, for he cares for you. Several weeks ago in a sermon, Brother Leland said in a very emphatic way that there's no place in the church for prejudice and partiality. And of course, he was exactly right in what he said. He, he said that in a very strong, repeated way. And I would add to that statement that there's no place for uh, pride and haughtiness and that kind of thing in the church either. Uh, Jesus, of course, being our perfect example of humility, right? He gave up the glory he had with the Father in heaven before the world was. John 17 and about verse 5 and, of course, Philippians 2. He emptied himself. He put others before self, and that, that's what humility does, right? Others are more important than self. So he gave up all of that in heaven, being in equality with God, and came to this earth. And everything that he did was for our benefit while he was here. So there is the perfect uh, example of humility and zero pride. So that's where we ended. Any any comments on any of that before we continue? The next thing that Jesus saw, or the problem that he saw here, was uh, uh, no thought for the poor. He looked around and saw that the, the the people that this Pharisee had invited to his meal were all of his buddies. <laughs> It was everybody that could pay him back. You know, I'll invite you to a meal today and maybe tomorrow you'll invite me to your house and we'll kind of even it out like that. But what did Jesus tell him he should have done? Invite somebody that can't pay you back. Think about the poor, right? Uh, the Bible talks a lot 
about caring for the poor. You remember in, in all of God's commandments and laws, he's always provided for the poor. You remember in the old law about the, the, uh, the laws about gleaning. If you were wealthy and you had a big farm and you had a big field and you harvested your wheat or whatever it may be, you were to leave the corners in various places so that the poor could come in and have something too. Um, in the New Testament, speaks of that quite frequently. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28, he says, Let him who steals steal no more, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, about verses 17, 18, and 19, he talks about those who are rich to not be selfish with it, but to be generous and share with those who are in, in need. Uh, it makes me think about uh, Matthew chapter 5, you remember, or 25 rather, the judgment scene, and there were the sheep and the goats. In that particular little, you might call that a parable there as well, I suppose. Uh, what was it that made the difference in that circumstance between the sheep and the goats? He just mentioned really one, one thing that made the difference. Now we know this is not an all-inclusive parable there, but in this time he emphasized what? The ones that were the sheep are ones that had done what? I was hungry and you fed me. <laughs> Thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you gave me clothing and so forth. Sick and in prison you visited me. And of course the goats were the ones that, that didn't do that. So in my mind, a uh, simple way of thinking, I would say, well, how important is it then to remember the poor? It's, it's pretty important, isn't it? <laughs> if it's going to make the difference between being a sheep or a goat, it's pretty important. And so that's the lesson that Jesus wanted to get across to these Pharisees as well. Any other comments about that? Lots, lots in the Bible about uh, taking care of the poor. Then he uh, he'd said at the end of that, uh, when he was talking about the poor, he said, uh, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So uh, if we share what we have with the poor, we really haven't lost anything, have we? In fact, uh, you, you can talk with Brother Brian back here about making investments and getting a good return for your money. But nobody can give you the return that Jesus can. Uh, when we... Uh, keep his commandments and share with the poor and be generous and that kind of thing. In the resurrection of the righteous, you'll get back more uh, than you could ever get in any other way. So you haven't lost anything. In fact, you've, you've gained much more than you could ever, ever deserve. So then he looks around and um, one of the uh, Pharisees, I guess it was because maybe it triggered in his mind when Jesus talked about the resurrection of the righteous, there, in, this is chapter 14 in verse 15. He said, uh, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom. So happy or blessed is one who will be in the kingdom. 
And so that kind of segued Jesus into another lesson that they needed to learn. And, and I kind of titled this Answering the Call, and maybe I should have said Not Answering the Call. Maybe we should have titled that. But, so he tells another parable there in verse uh, 16. A man gave a big dinner, and he invited many. And we'll see at first, it, it wasn't everyone yet, but he invited many. And I think this kind of corresponds to, uh, if you remember in Matthew chapter 10, when he first sent out his apostles to preach, he said, go only to the lost sheep of Israel. Don't go to the Samaritans. Don't go to those people. You just go to the lost sheep of Israel. And here in this parable, uh, we see that at first it just says uh, he invited many. And later on, we'll see there will be some more. But um, the people that he invited then, which, as, as I said, seems to be the Jews that he was inviting first here, they began to make excuses. One said, uh, uh, I bought a piece of land and I got to go take a look at it. Another said, well, I bought a yoke of oxen and I got to go try the oxen. And one said, well, I, I've married a wife and, and I, I just can't come. Um, one, one fellow that was talking about this said, well, this, these guys had to be either a liar or a fool. Uh, who, who, who would buy a piece of land before going and looking at it? You wouldn't look at it later. Same with the oxen. And I was thinking about uh, married a wife. I mean, what brand new wife wouldn't jump at the opportunity to let somebody else do the cooking, right? <laughs> and, and so uh, these were pretty flimsy excuses. And I think, I think Jesus did that on purpose because the, the, the application is making excuses to not answer the call of the gospel, right? That's the application here. And so what, what excuse would be a good excuse for not accepting the call of the gospel? What would be a good excuse? There's not any, is there? <laughs> and so Jesus showed by this, this example here that there really is no good excuse. These were flimsy excuses. So the result of that in uh, verse 21, as he said, go out and, and invite the poor, the crippled, and the lame. And then there was still room, and he said, well, go out in the highways and the hedges. And in the end, it was invite everybody. Uh, and I just, just a whole host of, of uh, scriptures came to my mind as I was thinking about these things. Uh, John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus had been talking to his apostles and telling them he was going to have to leave going to have to leave them, go back to the Father. And they were upset about that, as you can imagine. And he said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are what? Many mansions. Jesus is saying there's room for everybody. And so uh, you can think of the gospel call, Matthew 11, 28, 29, and 30. Uh, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Who would that be? That'd be everybody, wouldn't it? laden, burdened down with sin. And we, we think of passages like First uh, Timothy 2, verse 4, God who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the gospel. Uh, Titus 2 and verse 11, for the grace of God had appeared bringing salvation to everyone. And so God has, has made possible for everyone to be saved and the gospel call goes out to everyone. And I guess I've 
I've given away a question I was going to ask is, is uh, how are we called? And of course, it's through the gospel. What is it? Second uh, Thessalonians two and verse fourteen. Uh, you talk been talking about salvation and sanctification by the Spirit, and he says it was for this that he called you through our gospel. And I've always said a, a picture is worth a thousand words. If you want to see how that works, then just read Acts chapter two. Peter and the apostles preached the gospel. People heard it, believed it, and obeyed it, and continued in the, uh, the, the teaching of the apostles. And it says, uh, God added to the church daily those that were being saved. So that's the way that, uh, that we are called. Uh, you remember in Acts chapter 8, when uh, they'd been preaching the gospel around Jerusalem to the Jews, and then a persecution arose, and it said the saints were scattered everywhere. And what did they do? They preached the gospel everywhere they went, didn't they? So we see how God used persecution there to, to get the gospel out. In Colossians 1 and verse 23, anybody remember what it says about who has heard the, got the gospel call? Where, where did it go? Throughout all the world, he said. When it, read Colossians 1 verse 23. It already had gone throughout all the, the then known world. So the gospel call is for everyone. But he said, uh, look at verse 24. He says, I tell you that none of those men, it would be those that made the excuses, who were invited shall taste of my dinner. And of course, you can read in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8, 9, 10, along in there, those that obeyed not the gospel, it talked about them being separated from God and from his glory and his power for all eternity. So that would be the result of not answering the call. And so Jesus is dropping a pretty big hint here that you're not listening and you're not answering the call. Any comments about any of that? Feel free to speak up. Uh, we are real, really blessed to have David and, and Leland to preach from the pulpit uh, but in a Bible class, you get to take part too. <laughs> and so you can share your thoughts and your knowledge of the Bible with us. So we invite you to make any comments that, that you may have. Jesus never uh, does any of the uh, bait and switch kind of things you see salesmen and maybe politicians uh, doing today. And uh, he wants people to know he doesn't sugarcoat things. After he'd left the house of, of the Pharisee and he was traveling around preaching, and verse 25 tells us that large crowds were going along with him. And so he turned to them, he's talking to them then about what it's going to take to be his disciple. They were following him around. So he wanted them to know, if, if you kind of encapsulate that in one short sentence, what was it that Jesus wanted to get across to these people about being a disciple? It's not easy. It's going to take everything. Sacrifice. And in my mind, uh, the word that came to me was, was commitment. It's not just a short-term uh, happy feeling. 
you know, you've been baptized into Christ, and boy, I'm really happy about that. And then that's the end of it. But it's a lifetime commitment, isn't it? And so he says, uh, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So, <clears throat> so what does he mean about hating your father and your mother? I thought we were supposed to love everyone. Love less. Love less. It's a matter of priorities, isn't it? Uh, if your mother or your father, your brother, your sister, your children would keep you from being a Christian, if they would turn you away from Christ, then you better you better put them out of your you gotta put Jesus first. There may be some here this morning. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if there's not some here today whose family maybe has ostracized you because you obeyed the gospel. But that's that's part of the cost of being a child of God. There's any, any number of things that uh, we might have to give up in order to, uh, to follow Jesus. In Luke chapter 18, uh, he will t- Luke will talk about, or Jesus actually will talk about this, this thing again. And listen, he said, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much in this time and in the, in the age to come, eternal life. So, as a, as a disciple, you realize there are some things, some priorities you've got to make, and there's, there's going to be a cost associated with it. So let's just suppose for a moment that the cost in your life, it did cost you maybe your parents or maybe your child that, was unhappy with you for being it. But he said, even if it does cost that, he says, you'll receive many times as much in this time and in the age come eternal life. So how would you receive if you've lost mother, father, children, if you've lost those for the sake of Christ, how would you receive many times more right now in this life? Just look around us, right? <laughs> Just look around you. You've got a lot more brothers and sisters than you would ever have in a physical family. Of course, you, the hope and the prayer is that that physical family is part of your spiritual family, right? But that's not always going to be. Sometimes that, that, that won't happen and we'd be willing to, to give that up. But it's interesting. Just a one little side note here. It says, in the age to come, eternal life. If you're familiar with the uh, acronym TULIP, which is the basic uh, five tenets of Calvinism, the last letter, the P, is perseverance of the saints, which is another way of saying the once saved, always saved. And one of the arguments they make there to say that is that once, if you have eternal life and if you lose it, then it's not eternal life, right? So there must be once saved, always saved. But this passage there in Luke 18 tells us you don't possess eternal life until uh, in the age to come. It's not while we're here on this earth. That's not when you possess it, okay? And so that kind of blows that argument out of the water. So uh, he goes on to say that uh, verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus talks about the same thing. He talks about uh, bearing your cross daily. 
So it's something we do on an, in an ongoing matter. It's not one time here and then it's done, but it's on a daily basis you bear your cross. Uh, Jesus, I don't know if hint is the right word, but he gave us some idea that in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28, 29, and 30, when he said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Then he said, What? Take my yoke upon you. And learn of me, for a meek and lowly in heart. You should find rest on yourself, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What does that tell you then about coming to Jesus? What's it gonna what you gonna have to do? Gonna have to work. That's what a yoke is all about, right? You picture buying a yoke and you put it on some oxen and, and the yoke is on there so the oxen can what pull a plow or maybe pull a wagon or something like that. And so that's what Jesus is saying. You come unto me and I'm going to give you rest, rest from the burden of your sin, but there's going to be some work you need to do as well. But that work, that burden is not anything to compare to the, to the burden of sin that you're going to be relieved from, from that burden. Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Christians being persecuted for the cause of Christ. 2 Timothy 3.12 Paul said, all who would live godly will suffer persecution. So there's going to be a cost uh, with being a child of God or being a disciple of Christ. And then he's going to give a couple of examples. Just think about this a minute. You that want to be my disciple, um, here's a man that's going to build a tower. And he doesn't count the cost. He just starts building. And so he lays the foundation. Then he finds out. He doesn't have enough money to finish. And so there's a foundation of people going by and saying, boy, this foolish fellow, look what he did. Spent what money he had on the foundation. He can't complete it. So you'd be kind of embarrassed about that. Or the, or the, uh, the king that wanted to do battle with another king, you better look and see how many soldiers does he have? How many do I have? If I don't have enough to complete the task, then I better make peace with this other fellow. So a couple of examples just to show you. Okay, you want to be my disciple, and that's good. You should want to do that, but understand, understand there's a cost associated with it. So is it, is it then that Jesus said, okay, you're going to be died by disciples and there's going to be some challenges, some difficulties, there's going to be a cost and you just pitch you in the water and say, sink or swim. You got it. It's all on you now. Is that the way it is? No, God's with us every, every step of the way, isn't he? You remember uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, what it says about temptation? It says, God is faithful. There's no temptation that you face, that, uh, that God won't allow you to face one, but uh, that's uh, beyond your ability, but you provide a way of escape. So God says, I'm going to help you. I, I think of... Uh, Romans 14, verse 4, there was the weak brother and says, God is able to make him stand. Jude 24 says about the same thing. Uh, how does he do that? I don't know all the ways that God uses it, but I, I think of Hebrews 10 and verse 23 said, you remember the, uh, the Hebrew brethren were being persecuted. It was tough. And some were wavering. See, uh, they were paying the price. Well, they were seeing what the cost of being a, a disciple was. And he said, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? In that verse, why did he say we could do that? Not, no, no need to waver, for he is 
faithful who promised. He is faithful. When, when you're encountering challenges in life, and you can look back through the Bible, and you can see example after example after example where God always kept his promises. Not one time was God not able to keep his promise. That helped you get through the challenge. That helped you pay the price and be glad you could. But he went on there in Hebrews chapter 20, uh, 10. And the next verse says, Consider one another to provoke one another to love and good deeds. So what I think he's saying is, I know you're suffering, but you can count on God to help you. He's faithful. He'll keep his promise. And guess what? Your brethren, your brethren will help you as well. So when we assemble, we look around and we consider one another. Who can I see that maybe needs a little extra encouragement? See, that's what the next verse 25, we usually use verse 25 there, Hebrews 10, to, to say, don't forsake the assembling. And that is what it says. But in that verse, why did he want them to not forsake the assembling? To encourage one another the more as you see the day approaching, right? And so God provides help in lots of ways, in ways I couldn't even tell you. But I know two ways. Is one that he... He, he's, he always keeps his promises. We can count on him. That's why Paul, when he was in prison and about to be executed, in 2 Timothy 1, verse 12, he says, I'm suffering all these things because I preach the gospel, but, but I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, I'm persuaded. He's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Paul was confident that his reward, but also he helps us with the brethren you see around you. So God gives us help. Verse 33, so then none of you can uh, be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. So there's, uh, it's similar to verse uh, what is it, 26, it's a priorities thing. He's not saying, okay, you got to sell your house, you got to sell your car, whatever else you've got, you close in, you got to get rid of all of that stuff, get everything out of your bank account. But he's saying it's priority. If being, if being a disciple of Christ requires you, you can't be a disciple of Christ and hold on to that, then you better get rid of it. <laughs> that's, that's the idea. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 2, we see that, or Philemon rather, but we see that Philemon had a house. The church was meeting in his house. He didn't have to get rid of his house, but he was using it properly, see. Acts 12 and verse 12, we see Mark's mother, John Mark's mother had a house. So it's a matter of priorities. Then he goes on in verse 34. Therefore, salt is good, but, it, but even if salt has become tasteless, uh, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either uh, for soil or for, or for the manure pile. Throw it out, he says. Uh, so he's talking about then us being disciples and somebody earlier said working and being useful in the kingdom, right? You're the salt of the earth. So if you're a disciple of Christ, you got to understand that it's going to cost you. There's a cost associated with it. And in, in being a, a disciple, you need to be uh, useful. Uh, how can I encourage my brethren? What can I do? Does the building need cleaning? Does the grass need, you know, lots of things, but, but being useful. 
And if we're not useful, he says, then it, you're, it's worthless just to be thrown out. So uh, all of this means then that Jesus paid 99% of the cost of our salvation and, and our being a disciple, and we work hard, and we've paid the other 1%, so now we can be saved. Is that, is that the way it works? <laughs> no, no, Jesus, we, what we sing the song, Jesus, Jesus paid it all. And we're just meeting some, some conditions that he laid down to receive the benefits of his blood. Luke 17, verse 10, we see a little bit later on, he said, when you've done everything that you're supposed to do, let's suppose everything, we've kept every commandment that we could, he said, just go on and say, I'm an unworthy servant. I'm an unworthy slave. I've only done what I was supposed to do. So Jesus paid the price, and, and we are just uh, accept the cost of, of being a disciple. Any comments, questions, any about that? Let's look at, uh, that was chapter 14. Look at Luke chapter 15. Yes, was there? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I just wanted to comment on verse 27, this idea of carrying our own cross. Yep. Mm -hmm. We focus on uh, Golgotha, but we don't often think of Jesus carrying that cross. He had been uh, deprived of his sleep. He had been mentally drained and abused. He had been whipped. He'd been punched. Uh, his arms and back and legs were bleeding. He still carried that cross. He had just prayed the night before that uh, if it was God's will to take that from him. And how many of us, when we even carry the cross a short way without even um, maybe a tenth of pain, uh, do we become that seed uh, that comes engulfed with thorns and we, we give up? But when Christ was so overcome uh, and someone like our brothers and sisters here uh, would come to us, hopefully, and, and help us, he still continued on up that hill. Regardless of the pain, regardless of what people were shouting at him, he even stopped and talked to those uh, women who were uh, weeping for him and uh, talked to them. Uh, it's a hard road. And putting on Christ, uh, we sometimes uh, put him off because that cross becomes too heavy, whether it's socially or uh, professionally in our work or whether it's with family as he said but I wonder how many times we focus on that walk how hard that must have been to look up that hill and know that you would have to go through that and we may have to go through that here in this country uh, we may have to undergo persecutions we never even dreamed of are we willing to continue to walk up that hill uh, and complete the task Jesus was and Jesus set the example for us in our walk that yes uh, it is like that very day uh, when we look at the cross and we look at him hanging there 
but we don't spend too much time thinking about what it took to regain his glory in obedience to God. And that's, that's what I like to focus on is keep looking up that hill and forgetting about, as Paul said, forgetting about the past and going on up that hill so that we can uh, be acceptable servants of God. Uh, Jesus uh, never asked us to do what he was un unwilling to do, did he? And uh, any cross that we bear would be minor compared to, compared to what, uh, what he did. Okay, any other comments there? So Jesus then, he leaves the Pharisee's house and he's traveling around. This is Luke chapter 15, verse 1. And now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man uh, receives sinners and eats with them. Now, that's not the first time they've had this complaint. Back in Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus called Matthew to be an apostle, remember, what was, what was Matthew's uh, vocation? He was a tax collector, wasn't he? That's what he did. And he gave a, a, a dinner there, and other ta tax collectors came to his house, and Jesus was there, and so they grumbled uh, about him eating with tax collectors and sinners at that time. And what should become pretty familiar with us then, at that point, Jesus quoted from Hosea 6 and verse 6. Remember, he had he'd quoted from that before, and he says, I deserve compassion and not sacrifice. The time before he used that, it was compassion for the, the physical needs. You know, when his disciples were picking the grain from the field and have something to eat. But now it's not physical needs, it's the spiritual needs. They had no compassion for these people uh, that were lost. And so uh, when you, when you, the idea is then that your sacrifices are worthless if you have no compassion for anybody else. We looked at that in Isaiah chapter 1. I said, that wasn't last week, it was two weeks ago. So Jesus tells then three parables. The uh, parable of the lost sheep, lost coin, and the prodigal son. So let's, let's look at those quickly here. Uh, the first one you're familiar with, there was a man who had 100 sheep and, and one strayed. And so he left the 90 and 9 to go uh, find this sheep that had gone astray. And when he had found it, there in verse 6, he gathered all his friends and come rejoice with me. I found the sheep that was lost. Now, that is a parable. <clears throat> it wasn't an actual event that took place, although it was very common for that kind of thing to happen. And probably everybody that was listening knew of a case where something like this had happened. But it was a parable. But look at verse 7. <clears throat> verse 7 is not a parable. Verse 7 is a fact. He said, I tell you in the same way that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous who need no repentance. He said, here's a parable, and you're familiar with these kind of things about a lost sheep. Now, here's a fact. When one sinner repents, there's rejoicing in heaven. Then in... Verse 8, he tells another parable, the lost coin. Here's the lady that had 10 silver coins. 
and she lost one, and so she lights a lamp, and she sweeps all through the house and carefully looks at everything, and she finds this coin, and again she calls her neighbors together, come and rejoice with me. I have found the lost coin. There's another parable, and then there's another fact in verse 10. In the same way I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So what is the lesson? Remember, he's, he's telling these, these parables to these Pharisees that have no compassion for the lost. You know, these uh, uh, tax collectors and sinners, as they call them, they would just sweep them out with the trash and have nothing to do with those people. So what is the lesson that he's teaching in the, the parable of the, of the lost sheep and the lost coin? What does that tell you? If they were anything like God, they would have been rejoicing about the sinners coming to Jesus. Right. So, so those two parables tell us that lost souls are important to God, right? That's what it tells us. These, these sinners, these tax collectors, their soul may not be important to you, but they are to the God that uh, you claim to be serving. So then he goes on to the parable of, of the prodigal son. And you know how it is. Here's a, here's a man who apparently seems to be pretty wealthy. And he has two sons, and the younger son says, you know, I'm, I'm tired of farming, and I want to get out on my own. You give me my inheritance. And so he leaves and he goes into a distant country. It seems like he wants to get as far from the father as he could get. And he's away from his rules of the road and that kind of thing. I'm going to just do my own thing. And so he squanders all of his inheritance. And he, and he begins to be in need. And there's a famine in the land. And so he has to uh, get a job feeding the pigs. And he was so hungry, he wished he could just eat what he was feeding to the pigs. So he's pretty much hit bottom. And uh, in verse 17, it says he came to his senses. He said, here's what I'm going to do. I know I've done wrong. I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell my father I'm, I'm not even worthy. I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm not even worthy to be your son. Just take me in and be a hired servant just like your other servants and I'll just work for you. And you know what happened in verse 20, it says that uh, so his father got up so he got up and came to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. So I always picture that, that father probably every day searching the horizon, looking for that son to come home. And one day he does. So he says he felt compassion, embraced him, kissed him, and uh, killed the fatted calf, put a robe and a, and a ring on his hand, and there was going to be a big celebration, he says, verse 24, for my, the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. So if you stop right there, then this parable is teaching so far exactly the same thing about the coin and the sheep. Isn't it? The father cares about the lost. The lost are valuable to our father in heaven. He said it three times now, three times to these Pharisees. God cares for the lost. The lost are valuable to him. Three times he's hammering this on. God cares for the lost. But that's not the end of this parable. Then he goes on, he talks about the older son. 
the older son became angry and he wouldn't even come in from the field when he found out what all this commotion was all about. In verse 30, it talks about this son of yours. This son of yours. He didn't want to have any... You get the idea. He wishes he had never even come back. He had no compassion for him. He would, he would rather he hadn't even come back. And uh, the father says, but uh, son, you've always been with me, verse 31, and all that is mine is yours, but we have to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and become alive, was lost, and is found. So what's, what's Jesus teaching the Pharisees in this last part about the son, the older son? He's already said these souls are valuable to the father. Now he's saying what? I'll, ought to be valuable to you as well, right? If you serve the father and it's important to him, it should be important to you as well. It reminds me of, of Luke chapter 9. There in about verse 51 through 56, remember Jesus was traveling through Samaria and Samaritans didn't like the Jews and vice versa. And so they needed some provisions and the Samaritans basically said, just get out of here. We don't have anything to do with you. So what did, what did uh, James and John do? You remember? They said, Lord, you just tell us and we'll call down fire on these people and we'll fix them. We'll get, they can't treat us like that. You remember what Jesus said? You don't know what spirit would guide you to say something like that. He said, I came to save, not to destroy. So what does that tell us when you're in line at the grocery store and somebody cuts in front of you, get in the line in front of you, it makes you angry, and you see that person, what should you see? You should see a soul that needs Jesus, right? That soul, that person is valuable to our Father in heaven, and it ought to be valuable to us too. Uh, we ought to be getting our visitors' cards and handing them out everywhere, inviting people to the services and all those kinds of things. Uh, the prodigal son found out that the worst day with the Father is better than the best day anywhere else. And we ought to be, we will be blessed in the kingdom and we ought to be inviting as many in as we possibly can. Any, any final thoughts? Our time is up. Yes, Tali? And so that's one of the ways God uses us to do that searching, doesn't he? He can use us. So we need to be uh, useful to him. Okay. Uh, we'll pick up with uh, Lord willing, chapter 16, lesson number two next week. Thank you.